0: This is Medieval Death Trip for Friday, December 18th, 2020. Episode 85, Medieval True Crime 2, Concerning Violent Crime in the Coroner's Roles. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the show where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. Last episode, we had an account of violent crime presented through the framework of A Miracle Tale. Today, we're going to hear some items from medieval English coroner's roles. Our hagiographical narrative, and our judicial ones, have more in common than you might suppose. The miraculous intervention of King Henry to enable the victim to accuse his attackers was, after all, being presented as part of a collection of evidence to make the case to ecclesiastical authorities that Henry merited canonization as a saint. That miracle collection is as much a forensic document as the coroner's records accounting for mysterious or violent deaths or injuries. In fact, I forgot last episode to include what the findings were of the investigators who collected this story of William Edwards, Vicar of Hollington, and how he was attacked by some of his own parishioners. A marginal note in the manuscript indicates that this miracle was determined to have been proved and lists three witnesses prepared to attest to it, including William Edwards himself. Indeed, if anything, the miracle tale might feel closer to courtroom testimony than the actual court documents we'll hear today in that it is obviously trying to make a case and deploys rhetorical tools to advance it. The coroner's roles aren't really meant to level charges or even advance a prosecution. They are relatively bare documentation of established facts about an event and who is prepared to stand witness to it. Uh, I almost said testify there, but even that is conjuring a more involved and modern courtroom image than fits the medieval reality. The coroner's rolls really are closer to the modern police blotter. They're not really trying to make a case, they're just meant to record the circumstances which have led to a charge being brought to the court, or not brought, as the case may be. Another similarity between the rolls and the blotter is etymological, in that they both get their name from their physical form. The rolls are rolls because they were stored as rolled-up sheets of parchment, as scrolls, essentially. The police blotter comes to us through a couple of steps. Originally, a blotter was blotting paper. When you're writing with a quill pen and ink pot, you need that blotting paper, both to help dry the wet ink and also as a place for pen trials to get the ink flowing right and to test the cut of your nib. Anyway, the idea of the blotter as a kind of scratch paper transfers its meaning to, well, scratch paper and rough records, especially accounting records and registers, where you're marking down and tallying things before copying them neatly into the official books. So the blotter becomes a term for your set of informal working records or notebooks. And from that, 19th century U.S. police departments referred to the book kept at the booking desk recording arrests as the blotter. And then newspaper editors used that same term for the regular item listing arrests and incidents, which is the form of police blotter most of us are likely to encounter, at least in America. Uh, The OED tells me that police blotter is an Americanism, so I don't know if there's an alternative term in the UK or if this isn't part of your news culture. Uh, But anyway, that's one other thing the roles and blotters share, uh, that their names come from their original physical format. There are lots of kinds of roles that have been kept and preserved, but they are generally all forms of administrative records, ranging from the records of individual manor houses up to the Acts of Parliament. The coroner's rolls fall kind of in the middle of that hierarchy, originating at the county level but written for the use of the crown and ultimately deposited with the royal records. I should pause here and mention that the topic of medieval coroners was recently discussed on the Medieval Podcast uh, by Danielle Sabolski talking with Peter Konieczny. Uh, well, I say recently, uh, which was true when I began working on this episode. Um, at this point, it was back in October, so maybe recent isn't the best descriptor. But anyway, I'd encourage you to listen to that show uh, too, especially if you want a historian's perspective on the roles and their value as data for medieval crime. One way to start clearing away the clouds of modern expectations that might obscure what medieval practice was in criminal investigation is to start by looking at what the coroner was, since that's a term we've inherited for our current practice, but the modern office, while not completely divorced from its medieval roots, is still a rather different thing. Let's start by looking once again at etymology. The root of coroner is corona, just like coronavirus. Uh, Corona is Latin for crown or wreath, as in a a laurel wreath that you would wear on your head, uh, or anything that surrounds a figurative head, hence it becomes the Latin for halo, uh, as well as for the region of glowing plasma around the sun. The family of coronaviruses gets their name from their structure, as visualized under an electron microscope, where they appear to have a surrounding ring of projecting proteins like a halo or solar corona. The crown, in coroner, comes from the fact that they are a royal, or crown, official. In fact, the original full title was Custos Placatorum Corone, or Guardian of the Pleas of the Crown. As with much of our Latinate legal and administrative terminology, it comes into English through both clerical and administrative Latin, and also the Anglo-Norman French of the Law Codes and Proclamations. There is a short lived variant form of coroner that first appears in the 14th century, but really gains currency in the early modern period, perhaps as part of the cultural trend to distance English from French that was happening then. So instead of coroner, you find some people writing crowner, further anglicizing the Latin root into its more English form. And one of those people writing crowner was William Shakespeare as we can see in a line like Olivia's description of Sir Toby from Twelfth Night. "'Go thou and seek the crowner, and let him sit on my cuz, for he's in the third degree of drink, he's drowned.'" Crowner also continues to kick around in a few regional dialects, but its heyday really was in the 15 and 1600s, and the Norman coroner has stuck as the dominant form in English. Olivia's complaint also points to the primary function of the coroner, which was to record the circumstances of violent or accidental deaths and collect testimony as to the cause of death, including, in the case of violent death, the perpetrators of the act. In other words, to hold inquests. They were also brought in to investigate any deaths that occurred in prisons, and in some cases, they would be called to hold inquests over cases of serious bodily injury uh, or rape, and to add just a couple of other responsibilities to their portfolio. They had to report on both prison breaks and the concealment of treasure troves, which were by law the property of the crown, unless the person who actually hid the treasure came forward. Uh, There was no finders keepers in medieval England. Our first solid documentary evidence for the existence of the Office of Coroner only dates back to 1194, which is the year that Richard I returned from his captivity under the Holy Roman Emperor and had to wrest control of England back from his younger brother, Prince John, a conflict which prompted a set of legal reforms, including the Articles of Eyre, uh, that's E-Y-R-E, Eyre, as in the Circuit of the Royal Justices, and which I always want to pronounce as eerie, even though that is incorrect. Um, these articles include a description of the duties of the coroner. There is some suggestion that the office existed before this, but that evidence is not definitive. Uh, Another aspect of the Articles of Air that's relevant here is that they were less about establishing strong principles of justice and law enforcement, and a bit more about justifying ways in which the crown could seize assets and add to its revenues to help pay for the king's wars. This also explains the survival of the coroner's rolls. Why were the rolls kept, and why were they sent off to London to be processed and kept? Well, it's not so much to keep that police blotter record of who was charged with what crime, but more as a kind of invoice for the criminal's forfeited goods. And you'll hear that as we read through these items. Nearly all of them are very clear about specifying the value of forfeited goods and who currently has custody of them. Uh, or explaining why there were no goods to take custody of. So, for example, the murder weapon was always confiscated, if it was available, and held by the local administration, with its value ultimately going not to the victim's family or anything like that, but to the Crown. After all, the Crown is the real victim of any violation of the peace, and the Crown demands compensation for this injury. Regardless of who you kill, your felony is against the crown, as is still the case today, even in the U.S., just substituting the state or the people for the crown. Uh, And that's why our murder trials are the people versus or the state versus. So, the coroner is a royal official. During the 13th and 14th centuries, each county typically had four coroners, each assisted by a deputy, and certain major boroughs also had their own coroner. Coroners were elected by the county court and the requirements were that they be a knight and that they reside in the county which they would serve, though by the end of the 14th century, the knighthood qualification seems to have been dropped, Uh, and it was never mandatory for the borough coroners, who only had to be burghers of their town. Coroners had a lifetime tenure, though as with many royal officials, there was a tendency for them to be removed and replaced when a new king took the throne. The office was also framed as a public service. The coroner was supposed to work for no material reward and was prohibited from charging fees for holding an inquest, though complaints in the records show that some coroners nonetheless did exactly this. It is perhaps then not surprising that the office was widely considered a burden and undesirable, with quite a few people requesting royal grants to exempt them from being selected as coroner. Uh, And turning back to the duties of the coroner, Here's a description of the inquest procedure from an article by Barbara A. Hanawalt, uh, and you can get full references for the sources for this episode at our website, Uh, MedievalDeathTrip.com. Hanawalt writes, "...when a body was discovered, the first on the scene was to raise the hue and cry, and the neighborhood or the bailiff would summon the coroner. The coroner viewed the naked body where it was found." turned it over, felt for broken bones, noted bruises and wounds on the body, and recorded the cause or instrument, the place, the date, and frequently the hour of the fatality. This rather primitive postmortem was held in the presence of a coroner's jury, drawn from the free men of the neighborhood. The jurors were asked to identify the body, determine the cause and circumstances surrounding the death, and, in the case of a homicide, to name suspects. The coroner was to arrest the suspects, confiscate their chattels, and send them to jail. Since most felons fled as soon as they had committed a homicide, the coroner usually directed the sheriff or bailiff to make the arrest. End quote. This description highlights the other major element always covered in items in the coroner's rolls, which is the findings of the jury. In the counties, the jury was supposed to consist of representatives from four neighboring townships who are meant to bring local knowledge to the proceedings. Unlike a modern jury, these jurors functioned more like witnesses. This is more than we can go into this episode, but these inquest juries were something of a transitional phase into the jury system we're more familiar with today. As the English justice system shifted from the older form of resolving disputes through competing pledges of supporters and trials by ordeal or combat— Uh, in other words, a kind of formalized interpersonal conflict, to a more modern system of investigation, inquiry, and disinterested truth-seeking. So the coroner's juries still have one foot in the older system, where judicial outcomes were weighed by who pledged oaths affirming each side of the dispute. What they do is not evaluate the evidence per se, they're called upon to affirm the accusation, to say, yes, everybody knows that so-and-so fought with the victim and struck the fatal blow. So they function more like witnesses than a modern jury does, but their testimony also provides the kind of official validation of the charges that we get today with something like a grand jury. So you'll hear that in today's text, though the word jury seldom appears. Uh, these jurors are usually just identified by the name of their township or ville. Uh, and let's get into these records. Uh, All of these items are drawn from Select Cases from the Coroner's Rolls, A.D. 1265 to 1413, edited by Charles Gross and published in 1896. Our first item relates a violent robbery on a bridge that happened in Bedfordshire on August 1st, 1265. It happened on the bridge called Hale Bridge, below the Ville of Sudbury, upon the boundary of the counties of Huntingdon and Bedford, at twilight, on Saturday, the Feast of St. Peter's Chains, in the forty-ninth year of King Henry, that Marjorie, wife of Thomas of Beechamstead, Margaret, her sister, and John, son of the said Thomas, were on their way from the Market of St. Neitz to the Leper's Hospital at Sudbury. And there, on the bridge, John, son of Richard Herbert of Gambling Gay, Helloise of Obel Diesel, John's concubine, William, son of Nicholas Preacher of Huntington, clerk, and Edith, sister of the said William, came and assaulted the said Marjorie, Margaret, and John, son of Thomas, and tried to rob them. At length, the Hugh was raised and pursued to the Ville of Sudbury. The said felons then fled back to the said bridge, and William, the shepherd of Sir William of Sudbury, came there in answer to the Hugh, and on that bridge the said John, Richard Herbert's son, struck William the shepherd with a sword on the right side of his head, and cut away a portion of his head with the brains and the right ear, so that he died forthwith on the said bridge. The township of Sudbury came with the hue and arrested John the felon, Hellowise, and Edith, William Preacher's sister, and William, Nicholas Preacher's son, fled to the church of Diddington in the county of Huntingdon. Inquest was made before Simon Reed, the coroner, by four neighboring townships, Sudbury, Eaton, Y. Boston, Colmworth. The township of Sudbury says that John Herbert killed William Shepard with the said sword. Eaton says that John Herbert and William Preacher killed the said William Shepherd. Y. Boston and Colmworth say the same as Eaton. They also say that the felons had no chattels in the county of Bedford. Jeffrey, son of Eustace, who first found William Shepherd dead, produces pledges. Michael Page of Sudbury and Alan, Walter's son. The sword is worth 12 pence, and it is delivered to the township of Sudbury. So, that's what befell William the Shepherd and his companions on the bridge called Hale Bridge. We have reference here to another important legal concept that appears in the rolls and was referenced by Barbara Walt. This is the raising of the hue and cry. This was actually a civic obligation. If you witnessed a felony, robbery, assault, or murder, or if you discovered a dead body, you were required, under penalty of law if you failed to do so, to raise the alarm, announce the crime to whomever you could get to, and all of the able-bodied who heard the hue and cry— were expected to basically form a posse and pursue and apprehend the offender. You find versions of this kind of law all around Europe. In the medieval Icelandic law code, for example, it's spelled out that a person who discovers a dead body and doesn't report it within a specified time frame and a geographical radius, uh, it actually gets specific about like how many farms you can ride past before you have legally failed to report – If the finder fails in this duty, they are to be fined, uh, and in certain circumstances might even be treated as the murderer. It was serious business. The phrase hue and cry has a little bit of etymological mystery around it. The cry part is fairly straightforward, but where the hue comes from is less clear. We know it comes from Norman French, either from simply hue or hui, meaning to hoot or shout, or it could be from huche which means a huntsman's horn so either this is one of those redundant legal doublets like cease and desist or null and void where you just throw two synonyms together for added emphasis or it might indicate two different actions either the literal sounding of a horn or other alarm with the specific reference of calling a hunt uh, alongside vocal shouting so the hue and the cry Or possibly, hue means inarticulate yelling or hooting or whooping, in contrast to cry, which would be verbal calls and shouting. All right, on to our next item, an assault from December 27th, 1266. Richard of Eltisley, of the parish of Eton, came to the county court of Bedford on Monday next after the Epiphany in the 50th year of King Henry, January 11, 1266, and appealed William Mooring of Staplehoe, for that on Sunday next after Christmas, December 27, 1265, before the hour of Vespers, he came into Richard's house and assaulted him wickedly, feloniously, against the king's peace, and with premeditated assault, and striking him on the right shoulder with a willow stick, felled him to the ground. Then he sprang upon Richard, and seizing his index finger, next the thumb, with his right hand, bit the said finger, so that Richard believes himself to be maimed. This he offers reasonably to prove and to rein, just as a maimed man can and ought, and as the court of the king shall award. The said Richard found pledges to prosecute, Henry of Basing, and John Poignant, both of Staplehoe. At the County Court of Bedford on Monday next after Candlemas, February 8, 1266, Richard comes and sues, and the said William is exacted the first time, but does not appear. At the County Court of Bedford on Monday next after the Feast of St. Matthias the Apostle in the 50th year, March 1, 1266, Richard comes and sues, and William is exacted the second time, but does not appear. At the County Court of Bedford on Monday next after Lady Day in the aforesaid year, March 29th 1266, Richard comes and sues. William Mooring, who is present, denies all and finds pledges. Reginald, son of Geoffrey of Honeydon, and William Elaine of Staplehoe. So here we see the accused being exacted to appear before the county court. This is a summons, and if the person fails to appear, after usually five meetings of the court, they would then be declared an outlaw. And the one other thing we find in the rolls is that such a declaration for failure to appear is usually the closest thing to a verdict or outcome we ever see. The coroner will record a failure to appear... But if the person did appear and their case was judged and settled, that was a matter for local records, which, unlike the coroner's rolls, were not sent into London for keeping and therefore tend not to survive. So we seldom know the actual outcomes of most of these cases. Our next item is a kind of crime that sounds particularly shocking to modern ears, I expect, but is disturbingly common in the rolls in rural communities. Uh, And this is burglary not by one person or even a group of three or four, but by a huge band of robbers. And this does seem to be part of the structure of the criminal underworld of the time, uh, which is gangs that do operate as gangs on the model of a war band roving the countryside and looking for plunder. And here's what one such band did on August 1st, 1267. It happened in the Ville of Renhold on the 51st year, on the day of St. Peter's Chains, August 1st, 1267, that Roger of Benfield, Andrew Beaufrere of Arsley, and twelve or more other felons and thieves came to the house of Simon Reed at twilight and entered. They found Simon in his house, and forthwith the said evildoers, without a word, assaulted him with swords and struck him with a copper mace upon the left arm and between the shoulders, and struck Matilda, Simon's daughter, in the right thigh, and they wounded John, his son, with an arrow between the elbow and the hand, almost through the middle of the forearm. At length, when John saw that they intended to kill his father, himself, his sister Matilda, and the whole family, he seized an axe and struck Roger of Benfield in the head, so that he fell, and all the other felons at once fled. And forthwith the hue was raised, and was pursued by the whole township, and the townships came, and Roger lived until the next day, and then died and before he died he confessed in the presence of robert of krevkur and the township of renhold that he came there to kill simon and all his family and roger the deceased and the other thieves left behind at simon's house three horses with bridles and saddles and in full county court on the day of the assumption of the blessed mary in the 51st year august fifteenth, 1267 They are appraised at 45 shillings and are delivered to the township of Renhold. Be it remembered that Bartholomew, called the Young, the then Sheriff of Bedford, took the horses and harnesses in full county court for the use of Lord Edward. Inquest was made before G. Rowland, the coroner, by four neighboring townships, Renhold, Barford, Wilden, and Goldington. They say as is aforesaid. So, in that item, there's a fun Latin idiom that we don't have in English. Our translator says the robbers attacked at twilight, but the Latin actually says they attacked inter canum et lupum, between the dog and the wolf. That's a phrase that does mean twilight, playing on the idea that dogs are active during the day, and the wolves come out at night. So, this is the period between dog time and wolf time. Also, speaking of translation evildoers, which we encountered in that excerpt, always strikes me as weirdly modern-sounding. It feels like a golden-age comic book word, uh, though it does go back to Middle English. Uh, And here, it's a pretty literal translation of the Latin malefactores, uh, male, evil, plus factor, maker, so evil makers, or malefactors, we could also use our English derivative of the Latin. Our next item highlights another bit of legal procedure, which is that even eyewitnesses to a crime and discoverers of dead bodies had to find people to provide pledges for them, sort of like posting bail, to guarantee that they themselves would indeed appear when the county court convened. This also feels a bit like a remnant of the old form of trial, where the state kind of treated everyone like a party to the dispute, and therefore obligated to put stakes up on the outcome. Uh, without that sharper categorical demarcation between witness and suspect. Uh, We actually had this occurring at the very end of our first item, with the person who found the body having to find pledges. And here we'll see one of the victims, uh, as well as some neighbors, having to post sureties to the coroner. It happened at Honeydon in the parish of Eton on Thursday next before the nativity of the Blessed Mary in the 51st year, September 1st, 1267, that six thieves came to Honeydon about the hour of Vespers at twilight, and they met a boy, Philip, Roger Gold's son, who was coming from his father's fold. They beat him, maltreated and wounded him, and forced him to lead them to the house of Ralph, son of Geoffrey of Honeydon, and they shouted to the said Ralph, lord of the house, to let them in. Ralph recognized the voice of the boy Philip and opened the door. They killed Ralph's mother and servant and robbed his house. Then they went to other houses with similar results. Besides Ralph's, they plundered five other houses and they murdered the inmates of some of them. Then they went to the house of William Mott in Goodwick. They wounded him and left him for dead, and afterwards they burned his house. William lived until the following Monday and died before the hour of prime after having had the rights of the church. Then at length, Philip, Roger Gold's boy, who had been captured at the fold, escaped from the hands of the said thieves. He raised the hue, and pursuit was made. His pledges are Roger Gold, his father, and William Gold of Honeydon. Inquest was made before Simon Reed and G. Rowland, the coroners, by four neighboring townships, Eaton, Y. Boston, Colmworth, and Chawston and Coldston as one township. They say that, as far as they know, it happened as is aforesaid. The first, second, third, and fourth neighbor produced two sureties apiece. In our next item, we have another distinctive legal practice, which is abjuration of the realm. Fugitives who had claimed sanctuary in a church had the option of swearing to leave the kingdom forever, or at least until they were granted permission to return by the crown. Someone who had made this oath was given a set period of time to travel to a specified port and leave the country. During this time, they were considered to still be under royal protection, a kind of extension of the sanctuary, and it was not legal for them to be attacked. Their outlawry is put on hold, so to speak, until they've left the king's jurisdiction. But not everyone respected this protection, as we'll see in the following account. It happened at Sudbury, on Wednesday next before the Feast of Saint-Denis in the 51st year of King Henry, October 5th, 1267, that a certain unknown person who was imprisoned at Southhoe in the manor of the Earl of Gloucester escaped from prison there and fled to the church of Southhoe. And he abjured the realm before the coroner of the county of Huntingdon, electing for himself the port of Dover. He took the road to Sudbury, in the county of Bedford, and reached that place. And Hugh White, of Hale-Weston, Hugh, son of Hugh Atwell, of the same place, and Henry, son of Henry Hindyman, of Hale-Weston, the reeve and servitor of Richard of Saxon, who is called Golding, came and pursued the unknown man." They assaulted him with swords and wounded him in the heart so that he fell at once. Afterwards, in the King's Highway outside of Sudbury, they decapitated him with an axe. The township of Sudbury saw this. The hue was raised and the aforesaid persons were pursued into the county of Huntingdon. The hue was pursued in the county of Bedford from township to township. Inquest was made before Simon Reed, the coroner, by four neighboring townships, to wit, Eaton, Sudbury, Y. Boston... Charleston and Coldston. They say the same in all things as is aforesaid. It is ordered that the culprits be arrested if found. And here's an item that maybe most feels like an actual medieval police blotter entry, recording a particularly rowdy weekend evening. It happened in the Ville of Stilton, in the county of Huntingdon, in the manor of the Prior of Bushmead, on Sunday next before Lent in the 52nd year, February 19th, 1268, that Hugh of Stilton and Giles of Stilton, servants of the Prior of Bushmead, were quarreling in the Prior's cowhouse so that the said Hugh seized the said Giles and thrust him by force outside the door. Giles went to Peter the bailiff of the manor and complained that he dare not enter the door of the cowhouse to perform his duties. Peter and Giles then went to the door of the cowhouse and tried to enter. Hugh at once opened the door and assaulted Peter and struck him with a knife on the back under the right shoulder, inflicting upon him a deep wound. On the following Sunday, Peter went on horseback to Bushmead and said that he was ill He had the rights of the church and died on the following Tuesday. Inquest was made before Simon Reed, the coroner, by four neighboring townships, Eaton, Wyboston, Chawston, Colmsworth. They say that the said Peter was struck in the said manner and died of the said wound, and the coroner of the county of Huntington made inquest. So here we end up having two inquests held there at the very end, one in Bedfordshire, as the site of Peter's death, and one in Huntingtonshire, as the site where he was wounded. Both actions require the attention of the coroner, and when you cross the county line, you're now involving a second coroner's jurisdiction. Our last item is a bit lengthy, uh, though its raw narrative is perhaps not the most compelling Uh, I'm presenting this one as a specimen of medieval legalese, which is no less stilted and repetitive than its modern counterpart, but in a weirdly poetic way, I think. It happened in the Ville of Aundel, in the house of William Piquetto, on Monday, May 15, 1312, the morrow of Whit Sunday in the fifth year of King Edward, that a certain William Castle of Barnwell died after confessing and partaking of the communion, and his head had been crushed by a staff, and he had a wound on his left leg, made, as it seems, by a sword. Inquest was made before H. Randall and John of Ashton by four neighboring townships, to wit, Aundel and Warmington. They say, by themselves, on their oath, that Richard Ponder hit William Castle on the head with a staff, and William Limner wounded him on the left leg with a sword, and he died of these two wounds. But the townships of Benfield and Stoke say that John Blogwin also hit him in the leg with a falchion, and that he died of these three wounds. And twelve jurors say on their oath that they know nothing else except as is aforesaid. Richard Ponder, William Limner, and John Blogwin, after committing the act, Fled forthwith to some place unknown. They had no chattels. John of Wilby, the then sheriff of Northampton, was ordered to arrest the said William Ponder, William Limner, and John Blogwin. The staff was worth one penny, the sword twelve pence, and the falchion twelve pence. The township of Oundle will account for these. At the county court of Northampton, held on Thursday next before the feast of St. Barnabas the Apostle in the fifth year of King Edward, Margaret, formerly the wife of William Castle of Barnwell, near Aundel, finds pledges to prosecute her appeal against John Blogwyn of Aundel for the death of the said William, formerly her husband, to wit, John Porthos of Polebrook and Robert of Sutton of Barnwell. And forthwith, she appeals the said John in the following words... And the following is given in French as opposed to the Latin of the Roll Chronicler. Margaret, formerly the wife of William Castle of Barnwell near Oundle, who is here, appeals John Blogwyn of Oundle for the death of the said William Castle of Barnwell near Oundle, formerly her husband, who was killed in her arms, for that on Monday of Whitsun week at the hour of Vespers in May, in the fifth year of our Lord King Edward, who now reigns, God guard him while Margaret and the said William Castle of Barnwell near Aundel, formerly her husband, were in the peace of God and of our Lord King Edward, who now reigns, God guard him, in the Ville of Aundel in Northamptonshire, on an arch on the west side of a bridge called an English Crowthorpe Bridge, which is built of stone and mortar and crosses the River Nin from Aundel on the north to Crowthorpe on the south. The width of the bridge is twelve feet between these two crosses which stand upon it, and it extends twenty feet from one cross towards the north, and forty feet from the other cross towards the south. John Blogwin of Oundle came there on the said bridge at the said hour of the said day and year, feloniously and as a felon of our Lord the King and against the King's peace, his crown, and his dignity, almost joining body to body, lying in wait with premeditated assault, and he assaulted the said William Castle of Barnwell near Oundle, formerly the husband of the said Margaret. Feloniously and as a felon of our Lord the King, and struck the said William Castle of Barnwell near Aundel, formerly her husband, feloniously and as a felon of our Lord the King, with a polished sword of iron and steel. Its length was four feet and a half. Its width near the hilt was three inches and a half. In the centre, three inches, and at the end, one inch. The blade was of iron and steel intermixed. The hilt and the pommel were of well polished iron and the handle was of iron, bound and fretted with iron threads. And with that sword, while she held William in her arms, John gave him a mortal wound on the left leg five inches from the knee. The wound was eight inches long, four inches wide, and four inches deep, extending through the brawn to the bone, so that if there had been no other wound or blow, he would have died of that wound. Thus, of that very wound, the said William Castle of Barnwell near Oundle, formerly the husband of the said Margaret, died in her arms at sunset of the said day. This felony the said John Blogwin of Oundle, committed feloniously and as a felon of our lord the king against his peace, his crown, and his dignity, and after causing this death and doing this felony feloniously and as a felon of our lord the king, he fled forthwith. And the said Margaret, who was the wife of William Castle of Barnwell near Oundle, and who is here, at once, at the said hour of the said day and year, and at the aforesaid place, raised the hue and cry against the said John Blogwin of Oundle, as against a felon of our lord the king, and she at once made suit from ville to vill to the four neighboring vills, and so to the bailiffs of our lord the king, and from the bailiffs to the coroners, and so to the next county court, which is now being held." And if the said John Blogwin of Aundel will deny this death and this felony, the said Margaret, formerly the wife of the said William, who is here, is ready to prove it, in such wise as the court considers that as a woman she ought to prove it against a man. Here we resume the coroner's report in Latin. At the county court of Northampton held on Thursday, the eve of the translation of St. Thomas the Martyr, at the end of the said year, Margaret prosecuted her appeal against John Blogwin of Aundel, who was exacted for the first time, but did not appear. At the second county court of Northampton, held on Thursday next after the feast of St. Peter's Chains at the beginning of the sixth year of King Edward, Margaret prosecuted her appeal against John Blogwin of Aundel, who was exacted the second time, but did not appear. And at the third county court of Northampton, held on Thursday next after the feast of the beheading of St. John the Baptist in the said year, Margaret prosecuted her appeal against John Blogwin of Aundel, who was exacted the third time, but did not appear. And at the fourth county court of Northampton, held on Thursday the eve of Michaelmas in the said year, Margaret prosecuted her appeal against John Blogwin, who was exacted the fourth time and did not appear, but he was main prized by William Baxter of Aundel. And at the fifth county court of Northampton, held on Thursday next before the Feast of the Apostles, Simon and Jude in the said year, Margaret prosecuted her appeal against John Blogwyn of Aundel, and a writ of the king was received, removing the appeal from the county court as hereafter appears. And here is the king's writ in Latin. Edward, by the grace of God, etc., to the sheriff of Northampton, greeting. We order you to cause the appeal which Margaret, formerly the wife of William Castle of Barnwell near Oundle, is making in your county court against John Blogwyn of Aundel. Walter of Castor, John Papillon of Aundel, and Nicholas Acetoner of Aundel, for the death of the said William, formerly her husband, to come before our justices at Westminster on the morrow of St. Martin, November 12, 1312, with the attachments and all other adminicles touching that appeal. And tell Margaret that then and there she is to prosecute her appeal against the said John, Walter, John, and Nicholas, if she wishes, and have this writ there." Witness myself at Windsor the 15th day of October in the sixth year of our reign. For the said appeal cannot be terminated according to the law and custom of our realm in any lower court, but only before us or elsewhere before our justices. Let this writ be executed if the said John, Walter, John, and Nicholas request it, and not otherwise. And hence, nothing more was done in the said appeal. So, another crime story ends with more a whimper than a bang. But as for the language, especially Margaret's written appeal, it reminds me of modernist poetry, like something Gertrude Stein would write. Uh, Or, in the holiday spirit, I guess we also have a touch of the 12 days of Christmas in there, but instead it's the five sessions of the Northampton County Court, which gets you not a golden ring, but a royal writ. Anyway, That's our first dip into the coroner's roles. Uh, We will be visiting them again in the future. Our mystery word this episode is aslitand. This is an old English word and it means lawbreaker. It's a compound word like lawbreaker, uh, and that is basically exactly its translation. Uh, The word a is law or custom. Uh, and it's sometimes used metonymically for religion, as in God's law or Christ's law. Uh, and furthermore, ah is also used to mean wife, with the idea being that one's wife is one's law, as in your lawful wedded wife. Uh, and this latter sense appears in several compounds that can mean either general lawbreaking or specifically adultery, with the bond of marriage standing as a kind of law or custom unto itself. The other half of the compound in asletend comes from the verb slitan, which means to slit, tear, split, rend to pieces. Which gives us kind of a more vivid image, I think, than lawbreaker. The asletend is one who is tearing the law into pieces. It feels like a more irreparable violation. Incidentally, Old English also has the word labreka, meaning lawbreaker. Uh, using two alternative roots, la, from lagu, meaning law or regulation, uh, but also right or privilege, and brekan, meaning to break, shatter, or burst. So, in other words, the direct linguistic ancestor of our modern lawbreaker. Having moved beyond the limits of the modern alphabet with our mystery word, you will find that the first letter of aslitund and the only letter of the word for law or custom, ah, is the letter ash, which looks like an A and an E smushed together. But it is not just an A and an E smushed together. Ash is the name for a runic character, which looks a bit like a capital F with the two branches angled downwards. The runic letters take their names from key words that start with that letter, and ash is the first letter in the word, ash meaning ash tree. So where does the A-E ligature come from that we're using today? Well, A-E in classical Latin was a recognized diphthong representing a specific sound, but it was still written as two letters, just as we have O-U or E-A in our vowel diphthongs. The two letters began to be conjoined as a ligature in the Middle Ages, And that's how it enters Old English orthography, as a quasi-distinctive letter unto itself, when scribes wanted to represent this Old English sound. It's not entirely distinct from A-E, at least in the reception of Old English, uh, in that you have many Old English dictionaries and glossaries and indexes that still alphabetize words, starting with ash with the A-word lists, uh, just as though they began with the letters A and E. But even if its shape has not been distinct, it is distinct in its pronunciation. So, unlike your A-E in classically derived words like formulae or amoebae or algae, uh, and whether you use a long E or a long I or a long A sound for that, uh, all three show up in English pronunciations, um, and the feminine alumnae seems particularly subject to showing up in all three forms uh, in common usage. Unlike these classical diphthongs, ash is pronounced as a real flat, short A sound. Uh, my old English professor liked to say, it's like a duck, quack, quack. It's almost back of the throat. So the opening word of Beowulf, which some people want to read as what or whait, hw t is just what, like whacking a fly with a swatter. And that's going to bring us to the end of our second True Crime episode. I'd like to recognize our newest Patreon supporters. Thank you very much, Lucy, Dylan, Philip, Gretchen, Maria, Reagan, and Noah. Your support and the support of all our patrons really does help make the show possible. And everyone else is invited to support us for as little as a dollar a month, which will get you access to exclusive audio bonuses, you can do that at patreon.com slash podcast, or just searching for Medieval Death Trip on Patreon. Speaking of bonuses of a sort, uh, I have a Medieval Death Trip Christmas playlist on Spotify, uh, which I've been building up over the last couple of years. Um, and it's there if you want to put on about five hours worth of loosely medievalish or at least darkly folksy Christmas music while you're wrapping presents, or reading holiday ghost stories, or playing a traditional riddle game. Uh, I will say, a high tolerance for O Come, O Come, Emmanuel," the Coventry Carol, What Child Is This, and Masters in This Hall is recommended uh, before you put this playlist on. Uh, I've actually curated the playlist to try to space those out. Um, If you play it on shuffle, you may well get a few back-to-back versions of some of those carols. If you're interested, you can find that playlist by searching Spotify for MDT Christmas, which is the playlist title, uh, or you can find a link to it in my recent tweet about it on Twitter, where we are at MDT Podcast. And finally, you can get more information about this and every episode of the show at our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com, and you can also email me there at Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. I'm hoping to use the holiday time to get you one more episode before the new year, uh, but consider that a hopeful prospect and not an ironclad promise. Until then, here's wishing you happy holidays, free from any hue and cry, and thanks for listening.